Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Truth Nation podcast. I am 30% of your hosting team today. The other 70% is that man, the chief, Mark Garrett. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, Bill. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, about um, hey, this is something I've wanted to do with you for a while. Tremendous amount of respect for you. Knew you when you were the chief here in California for the Highway Patrol. You emailed me a couple nights ago, and you asked me to watch a documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis. And when you sent me that email, I thought, okay, this is going to be about the events after the death of George Floyd. What happened to the city? How law enforcement changed? How crime changed in the city after that period in May 2020. That's not what the movie was about. When I started watching it and I saw it go back to the actual events of May 25th, 2020, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be some right-wing propaganda film and it's going to change, try to change the facts of what happened that day. That wasn't the case either. That wasn't the case either. But before we get into the weeds about this documentary the events uh, surrounding the death of George Floyd, the trial of Derek Chauvin, and and what that meant for law enforcement as a whole. Can you talk to me about where you were May 25th, 2020, what your assignment was, and what were your first thoughts when you heard about this incident and perhaps saw the, uh, the initial video of it? As you said, I was chief of, of the, the largest division of the California Highway Patrol uh, in May of uh, 2020. And that division is Los Angeles County. Got about 13, 14 million people in that county. And here I am watching this video. And look, I grew up in Southeast Los Angeles, did all my patrol time, supervisory management time in Los Angeles County with the CHP. I've been through any number, untold number of riots in that time. And for all different political and other reasons, but so I'm looking at this now as a member of top management from the fourth largest law enforcement agency in the country and not wondering if, but I'm wondering when the poop is going to hit the fan. That's, those are my first thoughts because I have to think that way as a manager of 1,600 people, about 12, 1,300 officers, I'm thinking about what's going to happen when, when it goes south, when the protests start, how's it going to affect the people of this county? How's it going to affect my officers, my civilians that I'm responsible for? So that was the global, my global perspective and response. Now getting a little more deep in the weeds, I'm looking at this video. And my first thought from a tactical point of view is what I'm seeing in the video, it's really nothing that I was ever taught for the California Highway Patrol when it comes to enforcement contact. And again, those were my initial thoughts because I saw what everyone else in the world saw. It looked to me like, like Derek Chauvin, this officer, was kneeling right on George Floyd's neck, that he had him pinned down for almost 10 minutes. It was completely cold-hearted. It was dismissive of his duty to the public, to, to this suspect, all the things that were, that were marketed, so to speak. And, and in my opinion, it was marketed because as we're going to get into this later on, what we saw initially is not the whole story. So those were my initial, those were my two initial thoughts. How's it going to impact the people here in Los Angeles County? 
my people specifically and the CHP? And then why is it going to go sideways? Because what I'm seeing didn't look like anything that I learned. And I initially thought, man, this is completely improper. So uh, what I saw. Let me hit you with a hard question right out of the gate there. Initially, did you think it was bad policing? Did you think it was murder when you saw that first video? Uh, what, what were your thoughts around the actual death itself? My initial thoughts, uh, my initial thought was it was bad policing. That was my initial thought. Because again, we are seeing what we know now is just a sliver of all the video and other evidence that surrounds this incident. So my initial thought was just bad policing, period. No, when no, I was going uh, to say I agree with you 100%. And, and uh, see, you were talking about, you were concerned yeah. with, you were concerned with the people of LA, what was going to happen in LA, were things going to pop off in LA? I saw it and I immediately thought about the profession. I thought, man, another black eye on the profession, an untrained cop, poor tactics. Again, something that I was never trained in. I had people reaching out to me, asking me, hey, is that a particular move something you train? And I would say knee on neck? No, that knee on throat, that's not something that we train. Interestingly, I did think within a couple of days, seeing that video and over and over, I said, hey, the police killed this guy. I thought that, the, that that law enforcement killed him. In my mind, no question about it. I was disgusted by what I saw that I never even followed up. When body camera footage became available, I didn't watch it. I didn't seek it out. I said, I don't need to be reminded of how uh, horrendous this was, of how poor this represented our profession, et cetera. So I just put it behind me and tried to move on. Well, Bill, you bring up an excellent point with the impact on law enforcement, the profession, because that's certainly, it probably did come after my, my initial observation, how it's going to affect the, the CHP strategically, and and then this bad policing, but also the reflection on law enforcement, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I talked about this Early on, with, with when we started this podcast, I talked about it. And I said, including myself, but I think that Derek Chauvin got exactly what he deserved. But just like you're saying, the initial impression that I had, the initial information that was shared over and over, it was so damning to Chauvin, I closed my mind as well. In other words, we got to move on because this is cut and dry. It's clear, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't do my due diligence and really dig deep as we're gonna talk about today. Had I done that, my initial assessment would have been, and it is now, different. <laughs> Number two, you asked me about, do I think it was murder? I never thought that it was murder. And simply because being in law enforcement it, it, for 30 years and knowing, at least in California, what the definition of murder is, that's intentional, intentional it's, it's forethought, that I didn't think that officer engaged in an intentional act with the with the intent of taking the life so i never thought it was murder mm -hmm. i'm thinking more manslaughter mm -hmm. things like this maybe a second degree but certainly not murder yeah so so the documentary opens up mark and one of the first things the fall of minneapolis documentary it opens up one of the first things they talk about is the criminal history of george floyd what i didn't like about it is they don't really it's not clear to me, Mark, if those charges or the convictions 
when they're mentioning the, the times he encountered law enforcement in the past, was he convicted of those crimes? Was it just police reports taken, charges never filed, or what happened in a lot of those cases? I also feel like to some extent, the criminal history isn't really relevant, isn't really relevant to the events of that day. Would you agree with that or would you disagree with that? I agree in the sense that it's not relevant when it comes to the state of mind of the officer Chauvin and the other three officers at the time they encountered George Floyd, because they don't have at that point any knowledge of his criminal history. Their reactions have to be based on the circumstances they're involved in at that time. So in that sense, no. However, in what we learn later on, and we're gonna, I know we're going to get into this. I'm really excited about getting into it. We, le we learn about toxicology. We learn about health of, of George Floyd, which is not criminal history, but the toxicology part certainly is because it certainly shows what level of responsibility George Floyd had in bringing himself to the situation, and he did. This is 100% on him that he ended up in this enforcement contact. Nobody else is in the world, only George Floyd. And it also indicates that the continuous use of certain substances culminated in what we saw that day with the loss of his life. So it wasn't a one-off type of thing. So I think those things are important, but to the state of the mind of the officers, no, it's not right. relevant at all. In so my and for those that don't know, the initial law enforcement contact with George Floyd, it began because the allegation was that he tried to pass a $20, a counterfeit $20 bill in a convenience store. Police were called. They arrive at the convenience store, talk to the clerk. The clerk takes them outside and points to a Mercedes SUV parked across the street and I guess identifies that as the car that the, that the gentleman got in. Officer Lane, I believe it was, is the one that made the, uh, the initial contact. One thing that, and, and see, hey, my background's different than yours, Mark. Working at DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, we are, we generally know a lot about the people we're about to encounter. We, we are able to do our, our homework and we're able to dictate the, the terms of the encounter most of the time. Very different for uniformed law enforcement. And oftentimes over my career, when people said, hey, DEA, that's gotta be tremendously dangerous. I would say, no, definitely not as dangerous as someone working in a patrol car, encountering someone who they know absolutely nothing about and standing there at the window of the car and having to make split second decisions, ha having to digest a lot of information real quickly and make very good split second decisions. So talk to me about when the initial contact was made. Mr. Floyd was, in my opinion, non-compliant. I think they told him multiple times, maybe five to 10 times, eight times to put his hands on the steering wheel. What is that? And what is the training like when you, when an officer encounters someone who's not complying in the driver's side of the car? Look about the differences and what the DEA does, even though you guys have time to do your research, develop a profile, things like that. I think in other words, on, on average, you're dealing with a higher level, so to speak, of criminal behavior, because this is what you're going after with trafficking, sales, 
and cartels, things like this. But you're right. When you make the number of enforcement contacts that a street cop, a patrol officer makes, one of the problems is, and people have heard this a lot, that there is no routine stops, that, that officers make routine stops all day long, all week long, all year long, and that's true. But here's the danger. When officers start m making every stop a routine stop in their mind, this is when tragedy can happen. This is when your tactics can be forgotten because you get lulled into a false sense of security. It's a little difference here with George Floyd because this is somewhere in between that everyday traffic stop enforcement contact the officer makes and then going to the DEA where you guys have a ton of time to build a profile mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle because they actually got a call of someone who was allegedly engaged in the commission of a felony, at least here in, in, mm -hmm. in California, I think. And of course, it's a federal crime, it's counterfeiting, so we know it's a felony. That someone's involved in um, a felony. So you're going to have a higher sense of surroundings, circumstances, tactics, and teamwork in a situation like this because the initial crime has already been made clear to you. When you approach this vehicle, in other words, he was identified by the witness that's him, blah, blah. So you have, I think there's yes. three people in the car, if I remember correctly. And so right there, we have multiple subjects in a vehicle. And the alleged crime is of a felonious nature. You damn well better step it up. We would consider this in the high patrol, a high, a high risk, sorry, high risk contact. Because, because it's related to a felony and, or an alleged felony. Okay. Yes. An alleged felony. And this is, in other words, this is going to put, mm -hmm. put you in a different state of mind. And the, to your point about him not complying and watching this from being a you know, former cop, former street cop, it is excruciating to watch this where the officers are getting simple, clear, and achievable commands. Put your hands on the steering wheel. Put your hands on the steering wheel, and this mm -hmm. man is not complying. The flags do not get any redder than this. Sorry, that's all there is to it. The couple that with the multiple individuals in the vehicle. And again, an officer better assume, better put him or himself in a state of mind that if the driver's not complying, it's very possible that the people in the car are of the same mindset, are of the same attitude. Again, this is not going to hurt anybody or using excessive force, but you better be on guard to what might happen. Might happen. So this is where these officers were when you're not able to get compliance with a very simple command. From yeah, and I thought it was interesting that the female passenger, who I think was in the backseat, actually told Floyd stop resisting or something to that effect because she could see that he was escalating the situation i think that's fair to say would, would you agree with that by not complying but by not complying right. there is some amount of escalation of anxiety going on there not only was he not complying but i think any officer who's been in the field any number of months at that point, or had good training in their respective academy, clearly had reason to believe that either George Floyd was suffering from some type of an emotional, psychological, mental disorder, and or 
mm -hmm. intoxication of a controlled substance or drug because he was speaking in, I will say unintelligible, but certainly irrational terms, words, phrases. He wasn't responding to directly to the officers. The officer would give a command and he would talk about, my mom just died, I just had COVID or I got COVID, things like this that were, they were not direct responses. Even if he said, why do I have to put my hands in the wheel? What have I done wrong, officer? Why are you stopping me? Things like this. They will still not be compliant, but at least it would be rational. There would be a, a conversation happening back and forth. This wasn't happening. He was responding in irrational, non-separator terms, which again, adds another level of concern and awareness it should with so the contact. one thing that i did not notice in the video until they went back and slowed it down there was a point when officer lane after telling floyd several times put your hands on the steering wheel floyd had his left hand on the steering wheel could not see his right hand and officer lane has his gun drawn and you can actually see his gun in the frame of the video and floyd opens his mouth did you see something in his mouth that first, the first time you saw that, or did it take the video being slowed down? It took yep. the video being slowed down. Yep. I did not see it. Did not see it. Matter of fact, I went back after the frames were presented to us, like, oh my God, it's right there. So I went back and watched it at full speed looking for it. Even now knowing yep. it's there, it's still hard to see. Yep. Now there was, there was, I don't know if there was speculation or mentioned that it was pills. It didn't up. To me, I can tell you from my experience, it appeared to be uh, a baggie of dope. It looks like a white small baggie. Who knows? I don't know what it was. I suppose it could have been pills. It could have been something else, but it definitely looked like something white in his mouth. That's interesting because, hey, we've I think you've seen it. I've seen it. We've all seen people try to hide drugs in their mouth during an arrest situation. And the first thing I thought of at that time was, okay, is this why he was not being compliant and putting his hands on the steering wheel? Was he trying to hide evidence? Was he taking something out of a pocket, out of somewhere in the car, and did he put it in his mouth? And was he trying to hide it in his mouth to keep the officers uh, from finding it? And later on, when they searched the uh, Mercedes, they did find pills in the Mercedes that I think tested positive for meth and fentanyl. So it's there's no question there were drugs in the car. The only thing that's up for some amount of debate is did Floyd conceal or at least try to conceal some of those drugs in his mouth? Was he hiding drugs in his mouth? Did you have a different thought on that? Or, or what was your thought when you saw that, that object in his mouth? First of all, I think any reasonable person in or outside of law enforcement would, mm -hmm. would bet it wasn't bubble gum in his mouth. Um, and I, yeah, I want to mm -hmm. be fair. I want to be objective here as possible because you and I didn't see that in his mouth initially at the full speed of the video. The officers probably didn't either. So that specific element of it for me, from my point of view, is, isn't really germane to how things unfolded later on, but in a broader sense, this goes back to what we were discussing earlier. You asked me about the, the mm -hmm. compliance issue. When someone doesn't comply, an officer, based on training, and again, a seasoned veteran experience, 
is going to get into the mode that there is a reason or there are reasons that this person is not mm -hmm. complying with civil commands, whether it's they're concealing something in their mouth, they have a firearm between the center council and the seat. Any number of possibilities exist when someone doesn't comply. It turns out that it looks like one of the reasons he wasn't compliant is because he's probably concealing drugs. But those things are all ancillary in regards to the moment in time where the officer has to make a decision. His decisions are based on this person's not complying. Why he's not complying, we're going right. to try to figure out later on. My first goal is because this person is indicating to me he is not going to go along with the program, I damn well better do everything I can to make sure I go home safe tonight to my family. So all those other things are, are for an investigation later on. Right now, person not complying, we have to step it up here with the... When they were trying to put him in the police car, in the squad car initially, one of the things he said that, for me, connected back to that, what I'm going to say that is that dope in his mouth, was he said, when I start breathing, it's going to go off on. And I couldn't help but think when I heard that, did he swallow something and he's worried about accelerating his metabolism? He's going to start basically arguing, breathing heavy or whatever. That drug is going to hit him faster. I don't know if that's what he was talking about. It's a strange statement, but a lot of the statements he made are strange. But to me, that did connect back to what I saw in his mouth. And I thought, man, did he actually swallow that baggie that was in his mouth? And did that later play a major role in what happened? I think that it did. And I and we'll get into that because you really are the, ex, the expert on some of the stuff that we'll talk about here regarding um, controlled substances. But when you watch this documentary by Liz Collin, I just, it's just a very well done documentary. We should yep. link to it here someplace for the viewers. We find out this is not the first time that George Floyd had a substance in his mouth. Almost an identical contact, really, except he was a passenger in a car in, in 2019, a year earlier. Very similar contact, um, very similar kind of non sequitur statements made. I think at that time he actually, well, they knew he had dope in his mouth and they were giving him commands to spit it out. That was probably the only difference. And I think based on that, they called EMS right away. In this case, there still wasn't that much of a delay before calling EMS. Really, there was no reason to call EMS until, in my opinion, until they tried to get him in the car and he started complaining about not being able to breathe. And when they took him out and put him on the ground, they called pretty quickly. So he kicked, as they're trying to put him in the car, Mark, he kicks one of the officers. He does not want to go in the car. When they searched the squad car later, they actually found more pills with his DNA and his saliva in the car. W when I hear that his saliva yes. is on the pills, what am I thinking? I'm thinking he spit them out. I'm thinking he's, he, he had them in his mouth and he spit them out. Did he spit them all out? I have no idea. I'm sure that you, you used to search patrol cars before each shift so that if there were drugs found in a car, you could associate them with a suspect. In this case, there's DNA, so, so that's even irrelevant. But the point of that is mm -hmm. it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon, you know this, I know this, for a suspect to try to get rid of evidence in the back of a police car. 
The pat-down search, it's not going to catch everything every time. There's some creative hiding places there. And that's likely what happened this time. When I first heard about this case, I thought, why would they put him in the car and then take him out of the car? That didn't make any sense to me. Uh, it was almost like the intimation was he was in the car and they took him out of the car to basically abuse him or, or to inflict some kind of pain on him. That wasn't the case. He never really he, he never really got in the car and they made the decision to put him on the ground. They called for something called the MRT, maximum restraint technique. And that is actually uh, a big point of this documentary and rightly. And I don't know if they ended up using a hobble on him. Did they ever actually put it on him, Mark, that you saw? You know what? That's a great question. And I don't remember if they hobbled him or not. However, mm -hmm. I, I want to go back. You, you touched on something. And again, I, yeah. I have my magical notes here because the, again, we encourage everybody to watch this documentary. But I did put some bullet points down here, some high points, in, in my opinion, from a law enforcement perspective. Going back to EMS, and remember, I used the word marketing by the media of the so-called facts. And they are so-called facts when you go back three and a half years right. when the stuff first broke. We talked about elected, talk about elected officials, so-called community leaders, on and on, advocacy groups about, you pick the number, 847, 926, how many minutes they were kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Now, again, I'm going back and using the terminology, the words, the claims that were put out there in social media, mainstream media for months. And even, by the way, even still today, the I can't breathe thing. So what do we hear? They're kneeling on his neck for, I think, one I quoted here, nine, nine minutes and 29 seconds. And I think Nancy Pelosi. 847. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. And so forth and so on. All these claims. Not one time in those initial news articles and addresses did anybody tell us that those officers called fire and paramedics 30 seconds after they had him on the ground. They called for fire and paramedics 30 seconds after they had him on the ground. Now, going back a year before that, the enforcement contact you were referring to, Bill, in 2019, that officer also called EMS as soon as he was made aware that, or he had reason to believe that George Floyd had narcotics in his mouth, he also called. Probably the only reason, maybe it's the only reason George Floyd lasted another year because they were able to take care of him and render the proper aid, knowing what the potential health concerns were with controlled substances and what they might be. But fast forwarding now to 2020, May 2020, these officers called right away. There was no almost 10 minute delay of them calling Derek Shaman didn't kneel on, on George Floyd's neck for 10 minutes, and then they called EMS. We can get deep in the weeds about where the communication breakdown was, but the communication breakdown was with dispatch. The officers called immediately and saying that they need medical assistance, and they said, code three. Now, in California, we used to see HP, when we call, it's called Romy 4142, it means fire and paramedics, 4142. We don't have to say code three because EMS always responds code three, in, at least in L.A. County. I think anywhere in California, it's an automatic code three. But in Minneapolis, they said, roll EMS code three. Hurry your butt up. 
So those are other rumors and myths about this that if they haven't been dispelled completely, they, they really should be dispelled. The officers were not dismissive. They weren't negligent in, in, in that regard whatsoever. The other thing that's important to mention, Mark, is the MRT policy of the Minneapolis Police Department, the maximum restraint technique policy. What does it call for? It calls for EMS to be contacted if that technique is used. They used the technique and they contacted EMS right away contemporaneously with when they use the technique, to be honest. I mean, within 30 seconds of when they made the decision to use that technique, they called EMS and asked EMS to respond. They follow policy to the letter. Now, to that, Bill, yeah, I know you watched this, and obviously, part of Chauvin's defense, yep. again, we'll head here with the trial, was that he was following policy, that this is what I was taught to do. And I have it here. I have the timestamps, the video. Everybody needs to watch the entire thing. But the chief of police, the Minneapolis Police Department, he sat on the stand and said that he didn't recognize anything that, that Derek Chauvin was doing out there, that his officers mm -hmm. were never trained like this. He'd never seen it. It was not authorized, so forth and so on. Then the uh, inspector... Mm -hmm. Blackwell, I'm not sure what that rank equates to, probably like an assistant chief or whatever, but certainly high-ranking, actually, at least top management. Inspector Blackwell testified Chauvin's actions were not an approved right. technique. So you have the chief, the inspector saying he was completely out of policy. Right. We don't know where this came from. It's nothing I recognize, so forth and so on. Then we see Derek Chauvin's mom being interviewed by Liz Collin, the producer of this documentary she literally holds up the policy with the photographs and when you juxtapose the diagram in the manual to Derek Chauvin's knee on mm -hmm. George Floyd's shoulder blade mm -hmm. they look identical the policy is clearly there and the written policy is also pointed out in the, in the document. Here's what I think about that I don't know the history of this chief mark I don't know if he came from inside the department or he came from the outside the reality is, the unfortunate reality is, you come from outside the department and you are take a role as a chief and you're there for a few years. And again, I don't know if that's the case with this man. He might not know what they're trained because he never went through. It's possible if he's not from that department, he never went through Minneapolis police training. That's number one issue. Number two, I think he said that because when you read the written policy, right? The maximum restraint technique policy. It does not address the body positioning of the officers, how the officers should be positioned to physically restrain the person on the ground. The photograph tells a story, right? The photograph definitely tells a story, or in the case of Chauvin's mother's bringing in his training manuals, it was almost like a photograph that was turned into a a pencil illustration or something, but yes, but there's no text description in the policy of using that knee on shoulder, knee on neck, whatever it was. There's no uh, text description of that in the policy, and I think that could be. I I think that could be one of the issues, and I think that's a significant thing. And that and Mark, that may be why the judge made the decision not to let uh, those photographs in which I think is a bad decision 
And since you brought it up, there was also the PowerPoint training slides. Did you saw the PowerPoint print? The PowerPoint training yep. slides also show a very clear picture of an officer using the maximum restraint technique. And his knee is positioned almost exactly where Chauvin's knee was in the picture. Now, I'm going to draw some very subtle differences, Mark. And this goes to really more my training in jujitsu than than any police training I've got. I think you and I probably both agree, but that's a subject for another time that, that law enforcement agencies don't train enough. Mm -hmm. If you, I'm going to ask you now after we do this to go back and look at those pictures again. Look at the training PowerPoint picture. Look at the illustration in the uh, printed manual, and look at the officer, the ball of the foot of the officer that's controlling the person. So you have two points of contact. You, you have your knee, which is going to be on the suspect, and you have your ball of the foot, which is going to be on the ground. You can regulate how much weight you put on the subject by taking weight off the ball of your foot and leaning forward and putting it on the suspect or by leaning back and putting the weight uh, on your foot. And then really your knee is almost just resting there. In the pictures, I saw uh, a demonstration where most of the weight was on the ball of the foot. And that's not a very, that doesn't, that's not a very uncomfortable position for the person on the bottom. When I saw Chauvin do the technique, I saw most of the weight on the suspect. Now, you and I both know in training, you're doing the technique to another police officer. You're not really, you're not going to go 100% with the technique because it's training. And you're trying to be respectful to learning the technique, not necessarily having someone that's fully non-compliant or whatever. But there's a position in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu called knee on belly. It can be, it can look the same, but it can be incredibly uncomfortable. The way it's uncomfortable is all the weight's on the knee. The way it's not uncomfortable is all the weight is on the foot. Now, that's a very subtle distinction. I don't even know that most officers who were trained in that technique would even realize that. But uh, that's the only difference in the pictures that I saw and the famous Exhibit 17, the still shot from the cell phone video. Mm -hmm. That's the only difference I saw in uh, what was trained and what was actually done. So at worst, how I, what I would say is that officer was actually trained in that technique. Maybe he didn't do the best job of applying it, but he was definitely trained in that technique. And I am <clears throat> I'm really flabbergasted to see how that is not brought up at trial. Well, of course, I couldn't agree with you more. And you put it... You really put a fine edge on some of these points, Bill. I really appreciate that. And you make an excellent point about if the chief is asked, were you trained or is this something, whatever, he said, I don't recognize this because <clears throat> he he came into the agency mm -hmm. as a manager, as a chief, things like that, and he personally never went through it. In other words, that could be absolutely factual. However, if you're the chief of police, Minneapolis to police department. And you know without any doubt that the perception across the nation in the world is that Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck and killed him, murdered him. This is the perception by the majority of people probably. And he did this through a method that was never authorized 
by the Minneapolis Police Department. If you know that going into trial as the leader of the organization and you have not done enough research to look at training records to find out if this officer had ever received this training, you are negligent in leadership. You are negligent because everybody who knows me and everybody listening to this knows I have a big mouth and I like to get as much truth out there as humanly possible. And if I had been in that position, thank God I wasn't, I would never want to be in that position. But if I had to be, I would say, I never received this training. I never went through it. You could even say, we don't train it anymore. But I looked at the manuals and yes, he received this training. And like, to your point, he didn't do it properly, but he did apply generally the technique that he was trained on. That would have been a complete mm -hmm. and honest answer. And there can be tons of dishonesty and an incomplete yep. answer. You know that from being the DA, you know that. And sometimes an incomplete answer can be more deceitful, more misleading than a complete lie. It's just true, leaving out particular facts. So that, whatever is the case, whether he grew up there as a, a law enforcement officer, came up the ranks or came in new, I don't think his answer went to uh, what was truthful in, in a complete sense. I don't at all. However, not however, but in addition to that, then his answer was, you, you had another manager, high-ranking official, the inspector mm -hmm. come in and say the same thing. So right. you have two people, you have two people that, in my opinion, are playing stupid. Are you telling me that two people of this rank don't know that at some point Derek Chauvin received the training? Absolutely unbelievable. And like you said, the judge who didn't allow this in as evidence, the training manual, to me, is absolutely unforgivable. You put this information out there. That's why we have 12 jurors of your peers, to let them decide if this information is relevant or not. I know a judge has to introduce or allow or disallow certain, I totally get that. But my God, if the fact that Derek Chauvin did receive this training, is deemed inadmissible by That's a crazy. judge, then anything could be. And this is the whole crux of the matter. Did he violate policy, which resulted in the criminal death of an individual? This right. is the crux of the matter here. So I know I get tense about this, but my God, yes. this is deceitful to me. When I saw the training manual and I saw the PowerPoint slide that showed that exact position, I said, how does this not come in? There's no doubt in my mind that was the technique that they were trained on. There's no doubt in my mind. Fr from seeing the PowerPoint slide and seeing the, the actual training manual that the officer's mom had, they were uh, trained on it. Like I said, did he do the best job? Who knows? Who, who knows? But it's beyond my comprehension how that doesn't come in at trial. I guess I would have to go back and look at the judge's ruling to see specifically and that's probably out there somewhere. Shame on me for not having already done it. That's out there somewhere. Uh, th and that's something that is, is just crazy. It's just crazy. It is crazy. I, I have to admit, I, I'm really anxious here. Two things, like you said, I, uh, I too shouldn't know where this is in the justice system. I know Chauvin's had some things that have been, uh, was appeals have not been uh, heard or accepted, things like this, but I'm curious where some of these other rulings are going to end up. 
and, and maybe they've already happened and we still don't know about it, but I am really anxious to hear your take on the yeah. toxicology Ooh. and health part of this because yeah. this is huge. And I have some notes here, but you're the expert in this, Bill. And I want to, we, we know for a fact that he had multiple substances yeah. on board. We know this. And I want to get your take on what effect this did play physiologically yeah. based on your training and what effect that maybe it should have played. So lately. first off, what qualifies me to, to look at a tox report, Mark? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical examiner. I'm not a, a forensic pathologist. At DEA, we had a team called the Overdose Justice Task Force. And every single day, we worked to bring charges against people who distributed fentanyl that led to a death. One of the key pieces in establishing someone dies from fentanyl is the toxicology report. So I would say over the past four years, that team's probably looked at 400 overdose deaths in and around Los Angeles, reviewed a ton of toxicology reports. I've reviewed a ton of toxicology reports. I've spoken with prosecutors, agents and officers who are doing the investigations and even medical examiners about toxicology and what it means when proving uh, a fentanyl caused death. There's a couple things about this toxicology that troubled me, and this is where my opinion changed drastically. I had no idea that uh, Floyd had, uh, on toxicology, his blood serum level, 11 nanograms per milliliter of fentanyl in his bloodstream. Is that a lot? Yes. That's a lot. So, so let me talk about a couple things here to establish that. We've charged people. So we, we've had victims with 11 nanograms per milliliter of fentanyl in their system who've died, right? Victims of fentanyl poisoning. We've actually charged people who distributed the drugs to them to murdering them, for murdering them. So what that means is that a medical examiner said that 11 nanograms per milliliter was the cause of death in those cases. And here's, a, I got a couple examples from old fentanyl cases from around the country that I have, and it's other trial testimony, just so people can get an idea of what amount of fentanyl is potentially deadly. And then I'll go into some of the factors that, that kind of can mitigate th those amounts. Here's a question. And now this is the gentleman's name is Gary Collins, chief medical examiner, Department of Safety and Homeland Security, the state of Delaware. He was asked this question, understanding that every person is different. Do you have an opinion as to a level that you have seen, which would normally cause a person to overdose? If so, what is that opinion? Answer. In the vast majority of cases, any fentanyl concentration greater than three nanograms a milliliter in an individual with no other anatomic, uh, physical or traumatic injury, natural disease, or infectious etiology to cause death, the death will be attributed to the fentanyl detected. Let's go back to the, to the autopsy on this case. I have here somewhere a quote from Dr. Baker here, here's the initial report that Dr. Baker did. Autopsy revealed no physical evidence. This isn't me saying, this is the guy who did the autopsy. Autopsy revealed no physical evidence suggesting that Mr. Floyd died of asphyxiation. 
Mr. Floyd did not exhibit signs of pedicheic, um, help me out with that, damage to airways or thyroid, brain bleeding, bone injuries, or internal bruising. There was bruising on left shoulder and face. Pre-existing health conditions, heavy heart, some coronary artery disease, at least one artery was 75% blocked. Now, here's a statement that the medical examiner made before getting the toxicology. He said the ultimate cause of death may prove to be a multifactorial diagnosis based on what stimulants were in his system causing his heart to work harder, the exhaustion caused by the encounter with police, et cetera. After getting the toxicology, he said, this is a quote, the level of fentanyl was, quote, pretty high. He said that level can cause pulmonary edema. The lungs were two to three times the normal weight at autopsy. That is a fatal level of fentanyl under normal circumstances. So what people have to understand is that when people die of a fentanyl overdose, their central nervous system, let's just, let's describe it like this. Their central nervous system becomes so relaxed, it just shuts down. So their lungs fill up with fluid and you can almost think of it like they're drowning. They're unable to breathe. Hence, probably the statements, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. His lungs were starting to fill up with fluid. So I was looking for, unfortunately, when something like this happens, sometimes science will change to fit the facts. So I went back looking for uh, overdoses that happened prior to May 2020, and there was an incident. I, I used to track uh, what we call overdose clusters around the country. So anywhere where there was a cluster of overdoses, look at it just to see what was happening in that city, who was being harmed, how those drugs were getting into the city, et cetera. So on June 23rd, 2016, there was an incident in New Haven, Connecticut, where a dozen people overdosed on fentanyl. And here's what's, here's what's super interesting. Two of those, two of those people died, right? The first patient who died, his fentanyl concentration, 11 nanograms a milliliter. The second person who died, the fentanyl concentration, 13 nanograms per milliliter. Fentanyl was ruled the cause of death in those two cases. And guess who created this document I'm reading right now? The Centers for Disease Control. The Centers for Disease Control put out something called the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. And this is one I had grabbed from 2016 when this event in New Haven happened. That amount of fentanyl is deadly. We charge people for drug distribution resulting in death when we see that amount of fentanyl in a toxicology. How that didn't become, and again, Mark, you and I weren't in the courtroom, but how that does not become, how you don't have medical experts come in and talk about that is beyond me. The way drug-caused deaths are looked at, fentanyl deaths are looked at, there's something called a but-for cause of death. And what that means is, but for the fentanyl, this individual would be alive. Now, based on my experience, when I looked at that toxicology, and I saw uh, what happened on the street there, my opinion is, but for the fentanyl, George Floyd would still be alive. I really don't have a doubt in it. There were other drugs in his system. The ones that I thought were interesting were norfentanyl, 
nor fentanyl is a metabolite of fentanyl. So to me, that indicates that his body was processing the drug. So it had been in his system for a little while, at least. There was morphine in his urine, but not in his blood. Uh, another opiate drug, by the way. So you have a synergistic effect. Anytime you're, you're, if you're taking heroin and fentanyl, it's two drugs that do the same thing. The effects are going to be magnified. When we see a toxicology with morphine in the urine, but not in the blood, that is generally indicative of heroin use prior, maybe a day prior, two days prior. The body is still metabolizing some of the heroin and it's being passed as morphine in the urine or detected as morphine metabolites in the urine. That toxicology, when I saw that was probably the most troubling thing of this whole documentary, how you could have someone with 11 nanogram grams per milliliter of fentanyl in your system, just with my experience in looking at hundreds of these death cases that we've charged, how someone could have that level of fentanyl in their blood and that not be a but-for cause of death. I'm perplexed by that, Mark. Well, <clears throat> Bill, you may have said we've you, you presented the caveat that you're not an expert in this or not an expert in that. You're not a physician. You're not a medical examiner. But I don't think that anybody could have explained it better than you just did. I really don't. There's nothing more for me to say on that talk, topic because I think what you said is completely correct. I don't know how this was not a factor in this trial yeah, and either. Because. No, I was just going to say, and then the, Go the, ahead. Go ahead. the, at some point, and, and this may be, I think, related to what you alluded to earlier, ongoing litigation, either an appeal or some sort of civil suit, but a woman named Amy Sweets, Swayze Tamburino, I think she's an assistant to Dr. Baker who did the autopsy. She was deposed just in the past couple months, Mark, and here, here's, here's what she said. She said the doc, and she's talking about after the doctor did the initial autopsy, after Dr. Baker did the initial autopsy, he called her and here's what, according to her, here's what he told her. The doctor called me later in the day that Tuesday, and he told me there were no medical findings that show any injury on the vital structures of Mr. Floyd's neck. There were no medical indications of asphyxia or strangulation. And then she added that the doctor said to her, quote, Amy, what happens when the actual evidence doesn't match up with the public narrative that everyone has already decided on? This is the kind of case that ends careers. That's what she testified. That's what she said in a deposition. And I've talked to you about the level of fentanyl in, in the blood and how that alarms me. Dr. Baker said in the initial autopsy, that there's no physical evidence suggesting asphyxiation or anything else. How, how do we arrive at a, how do we arrive at a murder charge here, Mark? I think the person you were just quoting summed it up. And to me, again, looking back now, having all this evidence in front of us, to me, this simply looks like a political trial. It, look, as a result of lack of leadership, as a result of anybody. The judge, the chief of police, anybody being able to stand up and say, as bad as it looks, here are the facts. As simple as that. 
I think that the narrative that was pushed immediately was just too powerful for a number of people to overcome. In other words, through, again, lack of courage. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to say it. It's that we have to tell the truth. And look, going back, we talked about this at the beginning of this episode about where you and I were when this happened and, and our perspective, things like this. One of the things I looked at that was available at the time, Derek Chauvin's employment history, his, his disciplinary history came out, and there were a lot of disciplinary actions uh, taken against him. And a lot of complaints, there were some sustained complaints, I believe, I could be wrong, I think some were, for, were force-related. I said, you know what, this family is going to win hands down on mm -hmm. the civil case immediately, not because of what happened on that May Day in 2020, but because of, in my opinion, based on the information at the time, was negligent retention. In other words, this guy right. probably should have been fired for a number of transgressions over the years. That's why they're going to you know, lose. Now, again, I still don't know now how accurate that information that is available uh, regarding his employment history is. But there's so many layers to this, so many layers. But the bottom line is, Bill, in my humble opinion, is that there was no way, given the political circumstances, the political pressures, that Derek Chauvin was ever going to walk out of that courtroom a free man. It wasn't going to happen. And again, I'm not saying that he's 100% clean in all this, but did he murder George Floyd? I say absolutely not. If George Floyd had been sitting on that curb instead of lying in the street next to that patrol car, if he had been sitting there, he would have been dead in 30 or 40 or or 60 minutes anyway, based on the information mm -hmm. we have that you just so beautifully articulated regarding his toxicology. I do want to touch on the the larger ramifications or some of the other some of the other yeah. issues here, or at least one of them. Out of this, we had, and again, here we have the George Floyd mm -hmm. riots of 2020, right? In Los Angeles County, those riots were initiated with an attack on two of my officers on yep. the 10 freeway right outside my building Los Angeles. right outside exactly and i know where your office is right outside your building and boom and now we have a couple of dozen people killed in riots throughout 2020 summer and things like this and and what we have really come to fruition wasn't the start of of blm but man they blossomed into the to the incredibly corrupt organization they are today um, during the 2020 George Floyd riots. So we had all of this racial aspect. Oh, this was a hate crime and black lives matter and cops are systemically racist and blah, blah. By the way, disregarding the fact that two of the four officers involved were minorities, one's black, one Asians, but still yeah. this is a racial attack. And on all this crap that came out of the George Floyd riots and probably as a result of George Floyd literally killing himself and not the actions of any police officers in Minneapolis. One thing I want to read to you just very briefly about the hate crime aspect of this, the alleged mm -hmm. hate crime by so many people. This is Keith Ellison, who's still the attorney general of, of Minnesota, but this is from April 25th of 2021. So this is about a year after the incident. So Keith Ellison, and this is a, a quote from the publication, The Hill. 
in an interview with 60 Minutes that aired on Sunday, again, this is April of 2021, aired on Sunday, CBS's Scott Pelley asked Ellison if he thought Floyd's death was a hate crime. After a brief pause, Ellison responded, it wasn't. I wouldn't call it that because hate crimes are crimes where there's an explicit motive and of bias, Ellison said. We don't have any evidence that Derek Chauvin factored in George Floyd's race as he did what he did. Now, Ellison went on to say that Floyd was a victim, here we go, of systemic racism, not individual. There's no evidence that there was individual racism. Keith Ellison, on one hand, says, and this is important, I think, to the whole general narrative of this thing, how lack of leadership and lack of courage and lack of honesty can completely derail a society, unmoor us mm -hmm. from principles. Ellison said, and I agree with him, there was nothing to indicate that any officer there was engaged in racism, racial profiling, uh, hate crime motiva motivation, not one of the officers, black, Asian, or white. But he couldn't resist, he could not resist saying that this is a result of systemic racism. So you right now, Keith Ellison had, and he admitted, no evidence for individual racism, and he has no evidence of quote-unquote systemic racism either. If he had, he would have documented in this interview, but he didn't. He had to make some amends with the factions that hate law enforcement, mm -hmm. hate the rule of law, hate self-responsibility, hate individual rights. And I'm on a bandwagon or soapbox right now because this angers me to no end. George Floyd was not killed by a white racist. George Floyd was killed by George Floyd. That is the fact. And so I, I wanted to put that in there just from, yep. at least from my point of view as a ribbon on this thing and maybe get your perspective. No, I, I agree with you hundred percent. We can go on now and talk about the aftermath, the third precinct. Why, again, it's, it's a question of leadership. And we all hope that if we were in that position, we would make the right decision. But when the mayor says, and the mayor has come out and said, I gave the order to evacuate the third precinct. The, the mayor also said, we, as if he's a police officer, we will continue patrolling the third precinct. The mayor also said, our work will continue. Why is the mayor making public safety decisions, Mark? Yes. And... I'm glad you're hitting on this, the aftermath, because there really are two parts of the story, and there are two parts of this documentary. And the effect it had on not only local law enforcement, but the law enforcement profession in general is really immeasurable. Matter of fact, I, let me correct myself. We aren't mm -hmm. able to measure a lot of this. There are some clear metrics on the effect of that law enforcement, clear metrics, undeniable metrics. Going back to the mayor, boy, Bill, when I watched him making those statements about we are going to continue and we are this mm -hmm. and that, how My thought exactly. dare you put yourself in the boots of these men and women who you are now subjecting 
to unnecessary, unreasonable, and improper levels of danger. And then you have the gall to say that we are going to, no. You say, listen, I'm the head of this city. I've been in contact with the chief of police. And we're going to do X, Y, and Z in coordination with our law enforcement professionals. This is what a leader does. But what did he do? He orders the evacuation of the third precinct and things like this. My God, what signal did that send to these people who are now burning down their own community? The signal was, we won. They can't stop us. It goes to what I've heard you say a lot, Mark. The signal was, there's going to be no accountability right now. Go out and do as you will in the streets of our city. Yes. And of course, I remember I any of us watching this stuff. And again, of course, I was as chief in my department. We're all with my staff, my bosses in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. We're all watching this, wondering what impact this is going to have on our ability now to hold the line to protect the people that were sworn protect when the genesis law enforcement of this minneapolis police department just literally folds mm-hmm. and runs and, and again i'm not talking about the men and women those men and women are on the front lines out there doing the job that most people in this country don't want to do would never do i'm talking about their leaders just rolling over and quitting that impact was at the time it was immeasurable now looking back we can see and it's still happening now the the effects is having these repercussions are rippling throughout the country and it gave the moral green light to so many other chiefs of police to make these ridiculous concessions and then of course this is where the whole defund the police narrative started and maybe it didn't start there on that day. And I've talked about mm-hmm. this on, on, on my podcast. I, t- I talked about the genesis of the defund movement. We all start thinking it started with George Floyd. It didn't start there. So when I say start there, it got this massive boost. But the genes- genesis of defund goes way, way back. 30, 40, 50, 60 years. But this was such a tangible, public, and powerful expression of defund the police and man these cowards with four mm-hmm. and five stars and colonels bars and blah blah across the country they took it as a green light to say you know what i i agree i agree and they just stripped themselves of any responsibility the public to whom they were sworn to when back in the summer of 2020 when i heard the calls to defund the police i knew what our agency does when funding is cut. And it's probably, I suspect, the same thing your agency used to do when funding was cut. The first thing that an agency does is they stop hiring. Why do they stop hiring? Because it's an easy way to just reduce a financial obligation immediately. You can say, hey, we're not hiring now. We're going to save money on salary. Here's what happens. And I actually went back and LAPD is the example I use because they're a very transparent organization. I looked at the academy classes they were putting through in 2020. Mark, they were 86% non-white male, extremely diverse. So LAPD was hiring officers who look like the community, 
who are part of the community, who can interact with the community. When people call for defunding the police, that stops. That hiring stops. So I would argue that the first thing to suffer is is the diversification of our police force. And the first thing to suffer is having a police force that looks like and understands and interacts with our community. It, it was just so frustrating to hear that back then and understand what the ramifications of that were going to be. And then look at what happened with the Minneapolis Police Department, where they went from 892 officers in May 2020, this past October, 513. So yeah, that's almost, that's what, I don't know what that is, 40%? They lost 40% of their police force? Why did they lose it? Because there is no faith in leadership. It comes down to leadership. The workforce said, these people are not supporting us. They're not going to back us. They're not going to enable us to do our jobs. They're not going to, they're not going to, I don't know what facilitate. They're not going to facilitate our success. We're out of here. And that had national ramifications, Mark. Recruiting has suffered in all of the whole law enforcement profession since then. It's something that it's going to take years and years to recover from. I think NYPD is maybe the starkest example. I think they're down. I, again, I could be wrong. I didn't look this up, but just from conversation, maybe down five or 6,000 officers from 2020. Mm -hmm. Again, they're the largest agency in the country, but they've certainly lost more than any other agency because of that as well. Listen, I have good acquaintances mm -hmm. with NYPD and not only have they lost this swath of officers who are maybe close to retirement or decided, you know what, we're getting the hell out of the state. I'm going to work for some small agency mm -hmm. in what, Tennessee or Florida or you name it, Texas, things like this. But the officers who are left, and this is not unique to NYPD, but any number of agencies they're working unbelievable amounts of overtime to try to fill the gaps which does not bode well exactly for safety policing effectiveness listen accuracy and reports no, no not intentional just the reality inaccuracy but in other words the reality of exhaustion things like these are all and all comes down to eventually not being able to serve and protect or protect and serve if you're LAPD, in other words, whatever slogan, the citizens, the members of our society that were sworn in law enforcement to protect. When you think about some of the most negatively affected agencies across the country, often they are in these quote unquote communities of color. So the people, look, I just talked to a great friend of mine who's a very high ranking official in the city of Beverly Hills, California. We were just talking yesterday, mm -hmm. just yet, or two days ago, and I asked him about the staffing. Oh, my God. He goes, Mark, we're doing great. He goes, we have the money, and our agency is staffed. We are now at 8% of our staffing. We have pretty much everybody we can use. This should tell you something. In other words, the, the communities that can afford to initiate these large yep. pay increases, benefit packages, things like this, and... They are in traditionally low crime areas anyway, where cops are not okay. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna become the next Derek Chauvin because I'm having to roll out to these felonies over and over and over, things like this, these quite more quiet communities. They were able to take care of themselves. 
But the people who need the protection the most, the high crime areas, they're the ones Correct. suffering the most because of this nonsense of defund. It's A great point, Marcus. So to talk about Beverly Hills, and a lot of cities like Beverly Hills, they are able to collect private money to supplement their police department. I don't know if people realize that. A lot of the cutting edge things that Beverly Hills does, and that is an incredible, uh, so, some of that, you walk into uh, their command center there, and it's like you're watching an episode of NCIS. Um, the, the technology that they use in that city is phenomenal. A lot of that comes from private funding, right? So when funding is cut across all departments, like you said, they can still survive. They can still provide a high level of service and recruit. Some communities can't. Some communities can't. And that's where uh, it makes no sense to me because I feel like those are the communities that are being hurt the most. They are. And this is, it's one of my passions, this particular topic. Again, this all goes back you go back three mm -hmm. and a half years to George Floyd. And now we are seeing the fruits of this foolishness. And in, in California, again, I've talked about it on my show about the California High Patrol, which is also tremendously understaffed now historically, being ordered by Governor Newsom to go into these cities whose own agencies are being diminished are being decimated staffing-wise, going in and providing law enforcement services, especially up in the Bay Area, all kinds of cities up there, in Oakland and San Francisco and so forth and so on. And ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that we lose more people in traffic mm -hmm. accidents in this country than murder and things like this? 40,000 a year. The primary role of the California Highway Patrol is traffic. Mm -hmm. Not the only role. We do everything from expired registration mm -hmm. to murder and to force everything, you, you name it. But the primary mission is traffic enforcement. And if we are not able, I say we, formally we, if the California Highway Patrol is not able to go out there and do as much traffic enforcement, traffic accident prevention, DUI arrest, intoxication arrest, more people are going to die. And I'll tell you right now, I don't care if your loved one is shot or if your loved one is killed at an intersection on a county yep. road. They're just dead. You can't, you squeeze a balloon here, it's going to yep. blow up someplace else. So moving these resources around, state of California, is a shell game. It's just to look good here for a few weeks and look good there for a few weeks, and it's all disgusting. The problem is people like Gavin Newsom that have supported, and by the way, I was careful about this. I really couldn't find a quote where Gavin Newsom ever defended the defund or ever supported the defund movement, to be honest, to be totally fair to him. But he certainly never spoke up against it. He never called it ridiculous like you and I know it is and so many other people know that it is. And so it's his ilk that have got, gotten us to where we are. I wish it never happened. Like he said, Bill, it's going to take years and years to dig ourselves out of this hole. And I wish people could just show a little bit, a little inkling of courage and say, you know what? Uh, I don't even like cops, but this guy died of a drug overdose, not because Derek Chauvin was yep. on his shoulder. Enough said. I think that's uh, probably a, a spot to end it, Mark. Enlightening. Watch the documentary. It changed my opinion of the uh, case substantially. It, the events of that day and the subsequent, in the subsequent two or three days, 
changed our profession, Mark. And I appreciate you for being one of the leaders and stepping up and using your voice to try to change it back and, and make the profession better. So thanks for doing that. Bill, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to the next time. So God bless you for, with your new show and take uh, care. And here we go.